I'm just testing. I've got a few two minutes to test my whether my mic is working, and uh, with two minutes, so maybe it's time for a joke. Anybody's got a joke for us? <laughs> Peter really needs that. Uh, you know, uh, I think that worked anyway. Um, so I think the, the the topic that we have, uh, two of them, are quite exciting uh, in the health space. I think we have had very little um, of health, so if we're still on the old CPD scheme, it would really be a problem because uh, we wouldn't fill all our eight hours that we need. Um, so, so at least we have this, and I guess that's why many of you are here to um, to see what's happening in the health space. So uh, the the topic today is actually looking at the two tales of the distribution, uh, looking at the end of life and looking at the beginning of life. Um, we've got it all mixed up, so we're going to start with the end of life. Um, so Peter Botta will be talking about that. And it's not just about facing death, um, but the care that is associated with that, the, the, the insurance offerings or any of the solutions that are needed when that happens. Obviously, we know death is very certain um, and needs to be prepared for, so he's going to be talking about that. And after that, we'll have Matan, who will focus more on the birth, the costs associated with that, especially in the private health space. And, uh, and, you know, and it relates to also me medical um, insurance and many other aspects as well. Um, so the delivery mechanisms as well. Um, so I think uh, we, we, we're in for some exciting discussions. So Peter, yeah, you're ready. I'll just, uh, you just clap hands for him and uh, cheer him up a bit. Okay, thank you. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, yes, cheering up is very important. Um, we're talking about the end of life, and it's generally not a very happy occasion. Um, I was going to tell you that death is inevitable, but Lusani beat me to it, so sorry. <laughs> um, on the app, you're supposed to rate the speakers, and I just want to tell you it works a lot like Uber. So you give five stars automatically, unless your life was in serious danger. Then you give four. Okay. <laughs> Before I start, I just want to um, just give a, a brief disclaimer. The thoughts and the opinions that I express now are my own. They're not shared by um, any organization or institution, and I haven't shared them with any organization or institution, so they would not be endorsed by anyone at this stage. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is take you through a brief journey of how death and dying has evolved over time and how the care we give to the dying has evolved. Sorry, dry mouth. <laughs> And then I want to ask some questions which don't have very simple answers, but I think we as actuaries are best placed to answer these questions. We are one step removed from giving the care, receiving the care, and also paying for the care. So we have the independence, the training, and the knowledge to figure out what the answers to these difficult questions are. So at the end, we can have a nice discussion about what, what we should do when it comes to the end of life. So, Today, our society is death-denying, and I say this because we've also become quite death-defying. So if you think of any condition you may have or may have had in the past, and what that might have meant for your mortality a hundred years ago, um, you would realize that you might have defied death yourself. So in my case, with my asthma, which I have to take medication for every day, I probably would not have been here a hundred years ago, and I definitely would not have been running marathons every second weekend. Okay. <laughs> This quote um, encapsulates fully for me society today's view against death. Do not go gentle into that 
Good night. Rage against the dying of the light. You may rest in peace, but only once you have fought until your dying breath. Um, living in peace and dying in peace doesn't seem to be an option in our society today. <laughs> so what did the picture look like 100 years ago? So we only lived for about 32 years, and today almost 72 years. The main causes of death back then were all infectious diseases such as pneumonia, tuberculosis, and gastrointestinal infections. But today, the picture looks much differently. We are dying from heart disease, we are dying from cancer, and we're dying from strokes. So what led to these massive shifts in the causes of death? So arguably the most important was the access to clean running water. This curbed the spread of infectious diseases and, and helped people. And then came the drugs um, in the 1920s, the penicillin, and then the widespread availability and accessibility of vaccinations. And quite soon, infectious diseases were a thing of the past. Today, very, very few people relatively die of infectious diseases. And as a result of this and declining worldwide fertility rates, we have this phenomenon known as aging populations. So we as actuaries know and understand what aging populations mean quite well. Most of the industries in which we operate have adapted to um, the challenges that are presented by aging populations. So if we look at pensions, for example, we moved from a defined benefit environment to a defined contribution environment. If we look at annuities, the pricing thereof has become very conservative and guarantees are a thing of the past mostly. And then life insurance, fortunately, the risk of unexpected death has persisted. Product innovation has been great, and there's been an increased awareness of the need for life insurance. So life insurance has been able to consistently grow year after year. But what about healthcare? I think aging populations and sicker populations as they age present a significant challenge for healthcare. And I think we, as in healthcare, have been the slowest to adapt to the risks posed by aging populations. Our health systems are under significant pressure and the supply can hardly keep up with the demand. Um, and also our cover for healthcare expenditure, as you would know, is increasing year, year on year at an unsustainable rate. And this poses a very significant problem and threat to the medical schemes industry. And let me tell you, futile, aggressive and expensive care for the dying is definitely not helping this problem. So we've seen how death has changed over time, but what about care at the end of life? So this also has changed quite significantly. A hundred years ago, people were typically cared for at home, in their own homes by their families. The hospitals and the doctors back then are not the ones we know today, or, and they don't look the same at all. Hospitals were places where the destitute went um, to seek refuge, and the seriously ill and the mentally unstable were quarantined in these facilities. Rogue surgeons practiced surgeries and experiments on people, and often death was hastened at these facilities. So if you cared for your loved one, you would not take them to hospital. <laughs> you'd, you'd get a potion from a, from a doctor, and you'd go to the priest for a blessing, you'd take them home, and you'd hope they recover, um, which they often did, sometimes did not. But today, as technology has improved, as drugs became available, as infectious diseases became curable, hospitals became places of excellent care. So people actually went there to get better. They would go get some medication, get some treatment, go home and be healthy again. But this has also resulted in a lot of deaths shifting from home to hospital. And it has, our death-denying de death attitudes has resulted in us thinking any condition is curable 
And so we end up receiving very aggressive treatment at the end of life in hope that we can go back home and be healthy, be restored to where we were before. But studies in the UK, UK and the US have shown that today, majority of people die in hospital. And when surveyed, most people still say we would prefer to die at home. I, for one, would definitely like to die at home and not in hospital. The least preferred place to die is hospital, and then a nursing home or long-term care type facility. And for deaths in hospital, there's lots of reports of highly mechanized death attached attached to machines, tubes, and being isolated and alone away from your family and friends. And with this comes significant amounts of pain, and it's reported that the, this pain is not treated at all, and people try to get pain medication, but the focus of the specialists and the doctors are typically to look at the disease, look at the specific organ of your body that's failing, and don't look at the wider person and all of everything that encompasses the person. And often depression, loneliness, and abandonment are the feelings that accompany death today. So what are the problems with this? So one is we're not receiving the care that we want, and we are not receiving the treatment that we deserve after living a full life, a full productive life. And the hospitals that we go to are centers of excellent care, but they are not geared towards offering the supportive and assistive care that we require at the end of life. So the aim of hospital acute care is to cure disease, to halt the progression thereof, or to reverse the impacts of illness or trauma. And obviously, as we know, death is inevitable, so we cannot achieve these aims at the end of life. And unfortunately, our professionals aren't trained to recognize when we are dying or trained to admit that their patients might be dying. And as a result, we are receiving this very aggressive, inappropriate care at the end of life. And for me, this means there is a very large mismatch between our needs for care at the end of life and the actual medical treatment we receive. But fortunately, our evolution does not quite stop there. So with the transition from death at home to death in hospital, lots of people recognize that we are mistreating our dying patients. And from this came the sub-evolution um, in our medical care at the end of life. Nurse Saunders um, pictured here, undertook to study pain and suffering for those terminal cancer patients for whom nothing further could be done. And she realized that more than anything, what people want is to be loved, to be cared for, and to be free of pain. And from the work she did emerged our modern hospice um, movement that we know today. And with time, this hospice movement grew to what to a whole new medical specialization, which is today known as palliative care. And when I, mean, when I say new, I mean really new. It was recognized as a medical speciality in the UK in 1995, 1998 in, the, in Australia, and as recently as 2008 in the United States. Palliative care is much more than just hospice care, um, which is one common misconception people have when it comes to palliative care. So how does palliative care work? It's typically a multidisciplinary approach to care. Um, the main, I say multidisciplinary because it involves your treating physicians or doctors, it involves a palliative care specialist, it involves social workers, it involves chaplains, and it involves the whole family um, and yourself in the care that you re receive. The focus is on supporting the patient and making sure that symptoms and pain are managed as opposed to the curative aims of acute hospital care. 
I like this representation of palliative care as an umbrella with each segment, I know it's quite small to read there, but each segment of the umbrella represents a key value or belief of palliative care and it, it protects what is the most important to the patient. One which is the quality of life right until the point of death as well as the realization of one's terminal goals and wishes. Some important things to note when we talk about palliative care, and these are the common misconceptions that we have as society today about palliative care. It is not just hospice care, and it's not just care when you're at the end of life. So commonly people think if we want palliative care or if we want hospice type care, we have to give up on all forms of curative treatment. But this is not the case. Palliative care is suitable for anyone suffering from a serious illness that causes a lot of pain, stress, anxiety, and has a lot of uncertainty. And palliative care interventions have been proven to be a cost-effective conduit for informed decision-making at the end of life. So what often happens is we, we never have the conversation until it's too late. We go to hospital when we're close to the end of life, we get admitted, we hear of different treatment options, we say, okay, try everything and we end up dying very expensive, very aggressive, inappropriate deaths. But with palliative care, you're educated from the start, from the point of di diagnosis, you can benefit from palliative care and the different interventions. You get educated about your condition, you get educated about how it is likely to progress, what your likely treatment options is, are, and what the effect of those treatment options will be. And as you can imagine, this definitely results in better outcomes for all stakeholders. So if you knew and were pre pre-warned about what you might likely expect in future, you're much likely to opt out of aggressive intensive care at the end of life. So this saves money, it has better outcomes for the patients and the families, and doctors don't have to feel that they have failed in letting someone die. Okay. But there's unfortunately not an immediate clear answer, how do we get to this palliative care environment? There are some significant challenges that lie in our way. The first of which is awareness. We are, as a society, as I said, death denying and we are too scared to talk about death. Death is a big taboo. You don't talk about it because you will summon it. And unfortunately, death does not work like that. It can't be summoned and it can't be stopped. So a big problem in ensuring our medical scheme beneficiaries receive access to appropriate palliative care is to have them be aware that they have these options and benefits available. The next significant challenge is that of packaging benefits in a sensible way so that we can facilitate access to these care benefits. And this is no mean feat. Given the multidisciplinary nature of palliative care, we will have to structure our benefits in such a way that it spans a wide variety of independent care providers and independent care settings. And we all know the challenges that we have in our fragmented fee-for-service environment and that this will not be a very easy task to accomplish. The third major challenge is that because palliative care is such a new speciality and especially in South Africa, I don't know how widely recognized it is at this stage, there's a significant shortage of palliative care specialists, people trained in palliative care, social workers trained in having these end-of-life care discussions, supporting families and patients at their end of life. So even if we had the best awareness and the best benefits of what palliative care is, we don't have enough people to deliver this care. So that leads me to some simple questions which I don't 
think have very easy answers. I tried to answer them and decided I'll leave it for you to help me answer. So the first is, what exactly are the needs of our medical scheme beneficiaries at the end of life? And aren't these rather closely aligned with medical schemes' interest in reducing costs and ensuring access uh, to affordable healthcare cover for a broader part of our population? And why then can't we seem to marry these two um, needs that seem to go together so well? Then the next is, how do we treat customers fairly at the end of life? Are we seeing these inappropriate, expensive hospital deaths due to a lack of clear available benefits and equitable funding for these benefits through medical schemes? Do our beneficiaries not actually have a choice when they become seriously ill, rather than to go, go to hospital and be admitted? And then that leads to what are the gaps in our medical scheme offerings? And who should address these gaps? Is it medical schemes, or is there a role traditional insurers can play in this space? Is th the reason for this gap may be perhaps because there's such a big overlap between medical care and social care at the end of life. And because of demarcation and the medical scheme regulation, does this result in us not being able to close these gaps? And then just an, an extra question where I thought, huh, wait, I, I know of some intervention that we can quite easily stage here. What value adds can we offer as the medical schemes industry? So I thought, how about facilitating discussions about the end of life and care goals at the end of life? So we, we send our beneficiaries for checkups once a year. Why not include a discussion about death? Why not include updating an advanced directive? Then at least it stimulates having that conversation. It stimulates the thought of, okay, what might happen um, should, some, should I become seriously ill? And I think that's a very easy and very cost-effective way to create the awareness that we need. Um, any other thoughts would be greatly appreciated. So in summary, we've seen that death and dying has evolved significantly over time, and so has the care we give to our beneficiaries at the end of life and public in general. The great advances we've seen in medical care have been excellent. We live longer, we live healthier, but at the end of life we're receiving extremely inappropriate care we die in pain, we die alone, and it is a very sad, sad, sad thing to see. So we as actuaries are very well positioned to address these challenges we have. We are removed from actually providing the care. We can take a step back. We can say, okay, what is appropriate? What meets the needs of all the stakeholders at the end of life the best? And I think it's time that we ask these questions and try to address these problems. So thank you very much for listening. And go, go out when you leave, talk to your families, talk to your friends, and hashtag have the conversation. Okay. Thank you very much. Well done. Um, I think it's that time where you note the, the questions that you have. I think, um, I mean, doctors, their responsibility is to do whatever they can to save a life, even if it may not make economical sense, whatever that means. Um, so it's a discussion that needs to be had, not only you know, ourselves having the discussion, but with the doctors who ultimately are very influential. Um, and, and I would like us to think about also our benefits, uh, to what extent do our benefits, not our benefits, but the medical scheme benefits that uh, most of us do have in, in influence, very significant influence, uh, to what extent do they reflect um, some of the, um, how can I put it, um, the agenda that he has. <laughs> and so 
let's think about it, make a note of those questions, but I'm going to invite Matan to come to the stage and we can look forward to a more cheerful discussion. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Is the mic on? So yeah, so, so I'm going to be talking today about the, the other side, which is looking at the costs of uh, maternity in the private sector in South Africa. And what I'm going to be talking about is firstly getting a sense of what the status quo is, uh, what does the, the lay of the land look like currently um, with regards to maternity ca uh, costs in the private sector, uh, then understanding kind of how we got to this point um, and some of the... the uh, the factors and the, the issues there. Um, and then, you know, considering some of the problems that have manifested um, in this with this category of costs, um, trying to, to get a sense of maybe the, like, there's, a, there's solutions to this and giving a case study of, of, of one of those possible solutions. So to start off, um, it's worth giving some context as to why we embarked on this, on this research. Um, so rising costs are are well documented in the South African healthcare uh, sector, as they are globally, um, and solutions are, are you know need to be come up with from a policy perspective on trying to create a more sustainable, more equitable system. Um, and on on a policy level, they're doing just that and trying to embark on things like NHI, etc. But it's as important not to forget that the healthcare system is made up of a multitude of different categories of costs that all have their own nuances and details. Um, and it's incredibly important to understand these nuances when creating initiatives and solving problems. So we chose maternity as, a, as, as one of these cases to look at. Um, as it's a very high admission, a lot of emotion around um, this category of costs and the care um, during, the, time of uh, of during um, uh, the pregnancy and during the, the, the birth. The focus of the research is concerning the decision-making that happens around pregnancy and around birth. And a lot of the, the, the discussion that I'm going to have with you today is around the choice between cesareans and uh, natural births. Um, and then an, a byproduct of, of looking at these nuances and looking at this detail is that it allows us to go a step f further and look at second-order effects that arise um, when, when tackling an issue in this way. So an example of this is quality of care, which is obviously a concern throughout, the health, uh, throughout all types of care, but uh, like there are particular factors to consider with regards to maternity. So looking at things like infant mortality rates and mother uh, mortality rates. Um, and then looking at, at other aspects such as, in this case, indemnity cover, which I'll touch on towards the end of, the, of this talk. So before I delve into what the private sector looks like and the analysis of costs that we did on, on, you know, on private sector maternity costs, I thought it was a good place to start to getting a sense of what does the public sector look like. Um, this was not for the purposes of benchmarking against the private sector in any way, but I thought it was important to understand um, you know, what, is, what does the care look like for uh, that that the majority of the p South African population accesses. So in the 2015-2016 financial year, uh, there were approximately 900,000 births in the public sector. 26.2% of these were uh, cesarean sections. Um, so to put this into context, um, the World Health Organization 
recommends that an ideal caesarean rate uh, for a healthcare system is around 10 to 15 percent. Uh, so in the public sector, even though we'll see in the, in the private sector that the picture is a lot more, um, it's not, it's, it's, it's not as good <laughs> uh, to say the least, but you know, the public sector also has a little bit of work to do um, in this regard as well. And moving on to what an individual will pay in the, in the public sector if they're beyond the means test. So they, they earn above the, the threshold and have to be full paying members for, for care in the public sector. They'll pay in the region of four uh, to four and a half thousand for a natural birth. And this variation depends on the setting of care. So different levels and types of hospitals, there'll be uh, different uh, costs attached. Uh, for for C-section, it'll be uh, in the region of six to seven thousand, um, and it's important to be clear that this is not the cost to the system um, of this care, but rather how much the individual will pay uh, for this care in the public sector. And then for this, the outcomes with regards to infant mortality and maternal mortality look like this. So we're talking about sixteen point. Good, cool. So if we, we look at the, the um, dis distribution by province, it's about 16.5 uh, deaths per thousand um, in the Western Cape, you know, peaking at about 43 per thousand um, in the Eastern Cape with a national average around 31. Um, and then maternal mortality rates of about 119 uh, per 100,000 nationally. Um, and to put, to put this into a bit of context, in a, in a developed Western environment, you would expect these figures to be in the low single digits or as the, the low double digits or single digits. So there is still work to be done in the, private, in the public sector uh, with regards to the outcomes around um, maternity care. So moving on to the private sector um, and analysis and exploring you know, the, the data that we had at our disposal, um, we thought a good starting point would be to look at specialist costs, um, and in particular, um, OBGYN, obstetrician and gynecologist costs. The reason being is that they are often the key decision maker when it comes to uh, the, the type of delivery mechanism um, that's chosen during the pregnancy or at the time of birth. Um, and just to, to highlight that, the way that we distinguished throughout the, our analysis between um, vaginal deliveries and cesarean sections was using a DRG. And a DRG is a statistical tool which uses diagnosis codes and um, procedural codes together with details about the, the patient to allocate costs um, into different categories, so bucketing them into different types of emission so we can analyze the different types um, individually. And it also gives a sense of, of the severity of those cases. So looking at the average based on this delineation, we see that the cost uh, for a cesarean section is about 2,000 rand um, more, a little bit more than 2,000 rand more than um, a, a natural birth. And while this, we'll see that this, these costs aren't the, the main component of the cost of the birth, um, there is a question around why there is a difference at all. So, I mean, there is a, an argument to be made that a cesarean section probably takes more skill uh, than, than a, a, a vaginal delivery, so maybe the, the provider is, is reimbursed for that. But if you had to look at, look at it from a time-based perspective, um, a natural birth would take far more time and a, and, and a lot more attention uh, by the OBGYN than a, a cesarean. You'd be doing the exactly the same service. So there is a discussion as to why the, the tariffs 
uh, look like this um, and why they why the claims do look like this so moving on to the main components of maternity costs in the private sector and that's the hospital bill so what we see and what we've seen from our analysis is two main findings the first is that there's about a 10,000 rand differential between um, the cost of a natural um, birth and a cesarean section. So between around 17,000 rand and 27, 28,000 rand. Um, and uh, a, a stark um, outcome and results and quite a, a significant number there of 70% cesarean rate. So we said that the public sector had a little bit of work to do. Um, at 70%, that puts South Africa, the South African private sector, at some of the highest cesarean rates in the world. So what I want to discuss now is, you know, why we've gotten to this place. So, you know, what is the reason for this really high cesarean, um, this is really high cesarean rates that we're seeing in the private sector, and also why this, this cost differential um, is so, you know, it has manifested itself. But before I do that, I just want to take a slight detour um, and chat about what goes into to when we're looking at averages like this, and specifically talking about risk adjustment, which uh, all of you who work in uh, the healthcare sector and with working with healthcare data understand it's incredibly important to consider when comparing um, populations um, and the d different um, uh, groups of, of, say, maternity cases over time. So one way to do this, and the way that we did this here, was using the DRG. The DRG has a severity um, component to it, so it's able to classify um, cases into those that are without complications, those that are with complications, and those that are with major complications. And as, we see, as, as you can see, that the, the DRG does a decent job at this. You can see that costs, as we would expect, increase as, complications, as the, the severity of the complication increases. What we also see here is that the variation um, is far greater as the severity increases. And this is not surprising given the fact that there's probably a fewer number of these types of cases, and each of these cases is quite unique in the way that they manifest themselves. So, you know, the numbers can deviate um, within populations quite starkly, and, and what these kind of cases look like can be very different. Um, but when trying to achieve the ideal level of risk adjustment, uh, the DRG does a decent job at looking at things, at factors relating to the mother, such as comorbidities, so infection rates, UTIs, um, as things like chronic status, so a diabetic mother will likely have far more complications than, than one that doesn't, and then the age of the mother. But there is missing data that doesn't go into the DRG, um, which would be needed to fully understand the nuances um, of the variations with regards to complications of, of maternity, maternity admissions. And these, this is data relating to the child. So things like the gestation age, um, the birth weights, um, an APGAR score, which is a, a quick assessment at the time of birth done at one and five minutes after birth to get a sense of, is the baby in good health or does it need additional, um, additional care? And the reason why this data hasn't been incorporated is because the, the availability of this data is quite scanty amongst different schemes. Some schemes do it quite well, um, others uh, don't, um, and it's difficult to trust throughout a system and throughout a large body of data that it's done accurately. 
and as a result, um, we haven't incorporated it. But getting a system-wide view is imperative to understand the, the variations with regards to complication in, in full detail. So going back to, to the slide, um, no, about three slides ago, we looked at those two, two um, key results, which is around the costs of uh, the hospital bill, so why there's that big, that 10,000 rand de uh, deviation between vaginal deliveries and C-sections. Um, so why is it so much higher? So it's difficult for us using scheme data and administrator data to do a detailed analysis on an item level of the different hospital costs. The reason being is that the majority of obstetric and maternity admissions are wrapped up in an alter alternative reimbursement arrangements, namely fixed fees or per diems, which is essentially um, a fixed amount for the hospital costs for the admission or a fixed amount per day in hospital. And as a result, we lose the, the detailed claim line data. So doing detailed analysis on a claim line um, is, is not really possible. But what it is possible to do is to, what we first did was to look at the length of stay and the distribution of length of stays. And what we saw is that C-sections on average um, require a day longer of recuperation in hospital compared to a vaginal delivery. And that's, that's you know, one component of the additional cost that we can... Um, and it, this makes sense, it is a surgery, um, you are, you know, there is cutting involved and the, recu the recuper recuperation is necessary uh, for the mother to, you know, um, in, the, in the ward. And then, you know, on the same, in the same vein, there's a, there is theatre time involved with a, um, with a cesarean section and as a result this incurs a cost. So this, this gets us quite close to that uh, 10,000 differential. So that's, you know, the results that we're seeing make sense. The, the more um, interesting discussion and the more involved discussion um, and probably more opaque in trying to decipher why, why this is the case is why are C-sections so popular in the private sector in South Africa? Why does the World Health Organization say that the ideal rate is between 10 and 15 percent and the private sector has gotten to this place where it's at 70 percent, so the vast majority are C-sections? Um, and this is in light of the fact that amongst clinicians, the consensus is that an uncomplicated natural birth is the ideal. So Atul Gawande, in his book called Better, does an incredible job at ex explaining one of the potential reasons for this. And it's a book that I, like, I think is a must read and I would recommend to all of, all of you, especially if you're working in the healthcare sector. He does an incredible job of explaining really intricate um, and, and quite uh, uh, like taboo subjects in a, in a very like relatable and, and easy way. And what he, what he talks about is this idea of control and what a, a, a surgery provides a surgeon um, with regards to control. So in, in that statement with regards to the ideal of an uncomplicated natural birth, the, the key word there is uncomplicated. But if complications do arise, the, those complications with regards to natural deliveries can be devastating. Um, and the horror stories that you hear of mothers with regards that have gone through natural deliveries that have had complications are, are quite extreme and very varied. And ev evidence of that, as we saw earlier when we looked at the, the costs by uh, the different types of complication, is that the variation was far greater uh, when we looked at vaginal deliveries than when we looked at uh, cesarean sections. So in order to avoid this, it seems he explains that surgeons have, have erred on the side of Let's do something that we can, we can control. A, a C-section is a, a fairly straightforward, common surgery uh, that they know the outcomes, that the, if there are complications, they won't be that extreme, 
um, and they won't be those horror stories that they have to, to deal with um, after, after the fact. Um, and he, he puts it quite succinctly in one of the lines in the book where he says that the choice to, to do surgeries and C-sections is a choice to, go to choose reliability over the possibility of occasional perfection. And that's exactly what's, what's happening here. Um, obviously, there are other incentives that may be at play here. So, um, you know, the specialist costs are not a time-based fee. So as we discussed, you know, a, a woman can be in labor for many, many hours um, and a doctor could be actually be earning less for if he had gone to, to done, just done a C-section and then get the baby out in 45 minutes, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes. Um, also, they can schedule these surgeries quite easily so they can do more in a day. You know, there's some hospitals that haven't seen a birth on a weekend for like the last 10 years um, because, you know, they can schedule all their surgeries effectively. Um, and then as a result of the, pro the proliferation of these, admit these types of uh, births, throughout the industry, it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that all uh, um, mothers are, are doing C-sections. So, you know, that's what their friends got. That's what they kind of expect going into the process. So there's this patient entitlement that manifests itself. Um, and this is an incredibly difficult to, to break um, after the fact. And probably one of the bigger challenges when trying to create incentives and, and pr provide a solution to this problem. So, we just talked about the fact that the choice to do a cesarean sections over natural uh, births is one where you're choosing control, you're choosing this reliability. Um, and then, so there's the, the expectation that as a result, um, the outcomes would be quite, uh, you know, quite, you know, quite known and quite good. Um, and there wouldn't be this, this massive uh, variation in the outcomes. And while it's difficult to, to look at in detail uh, the data regarding outcomes in the private sector with regards to infant mortality, um, you know, mother mortality, and, and, and other factors regarding the quality of care, an insight into this is with regards to indemnity cover. So indemnity cover for um, an OBGYN is fast approaching a million rand. I mean, this is a huge amount of money um, you know, for insurance, like as we know, that's that's, that's meaning a really high utilization you know, of, this, of this type of insurance with, with, a, with large payouts. Um, and the, the reasons for this, you know, there are countervailing factors such as the fact that you know, lawyers are chasing these types of cases more and more because they feel like they can get these payouts. And there's a lot of you know, ethical issues around and emotion around these types of things, so the payouts could be larger. Um, and there's not a, a huge amount of competition in the, pr the provision of indemnity cover, um, even though you know, this new company called Ethical that's just entered the market to compete against MPS. But a big factor is the, the fact that there isn't consistent maternity care that's provided, um, despite the choice to go with, um, you know, by and large, uh, C-sections over natural births. There's deviations in the standard protocols um, and the, the treatment decisions aren't properly documented. The re results being that when it comes to uh, malpractice suits, the, the doctor has nothing no, but to fold and just to, to settle the case because they don't really have the evidence um, and they, they don't have the, the certain knowledge that they've followed evidence-based um, protocols throughout the process. So they settle just to make, sh make the cases go away, resulting in far more settlements and far gr um, settlements of, of, of a larger amount. 
more severe ones. So the, the, now there's a question of is this a potential alternative um, to the current reimbursement of healthcare to solve some of these problems and to do things a little bit differently. So I work for a company called Insight. We've done some work with um, another company called PPOServe who's recently entered the market with a product called the Birthing Team. And what they endeavor to do differently is to provide end-to-end -end maternity care for the, the entire episode, so including antenatal costs, the, the cost of bloods and scans, um, as well as um, postnatal uh, care and education, all for 19,500 rand for the entire episode. So how are they able to achieve this, this kind of um, cost effectiveness? So they've changed the thinking in a number of ways to achieve this. Firstly, they've, they've isolated the fact that it's important to, to engage in task shifting. So a lot of the tasks and the services provided by the gynecologist and the obstetrician um, could be done by a midwife. The, the speciality is not needed for the majority of births. Complications are needed to, to deal with these, but it is, it is, it's not necessary to see the, the gynecologist 12 times you know, before the birth and then for the, even for them to be in the room. You know, a GP or a, or a midwife could do as good a job a lot of the time. Another thing that they're doing is to focus on a high volume, um, a high volume low cost model, where they're joining in a joint venture with particular hospitals in order to provide these services in a cost effective way. And then the other thing that they're doing is proper risk assessment at the, at the start. So understanding the mother and creating uh, customized care plans that are tracked and updated through every visit um, that the mother has with one of the providers uh, so that the process is firstly properly documented, but that is particular to the mother that, that um, focuses on all of the different evidence-based protocols that are important that need to be incorporated for that uh, particular case, and in so doing are able to reduce complications by about two-thirds. So this is, this is a potential alternative, and the, the patient journey looks something like this. So that initial assessment where, the risk asse where, where that detailed risk assessment is done, that the care plan is generated, and then tracking the mother from that point throughout the episode, providing the required antenatal care that they need so that they avoid complications at the time of birth and then you know, providing the necessary care after birth. So we've seen that the, the current state of the private sector is one where there are these distortions and there are these uh, negative characteristics, but we also see that there are these solutions on the way to do things differently. And it's important to in, engage with these kind of initiatives and to test them and to pilot them so that along with the policy change, we can focus on these specific categories of costs um, and get the, the nuances right and create initiatives that effectively solve these problems. Thank you very much. Okay, let's see where those mics are. Do I have the first question? Yes, ma'am. Is the mic ready? Uh, perhaps you can try to project your lovely voice. Yes. 
Yes. Life, potentially sure. losing a life. Sure. So um, I was wondering when you consider cesarean section, um, it sounds like it's all grouped together as if it's a, a choice up front. Did you consider um, emergency C-sections where the choice sure. was natural birth, but um, actually at a, at a very late stage you had to, had to have a cesarean section? Sure. So it's difficult to, to know when that decision is made. So um, one, one indicator would be that if a cesarean section would, um, would, would be required at the time of birth, it would likely be something that a more complicated birth and it would pop up as a more severe birth as it, as, it, as it stands. But we're not saying that cesarean sections as a concept are wrong. They are necessary. And I mean, when referring back to that World Health Organization report on what that ideal rate, it's not saying that it should be zero. But you know, 10, 15% makes sense within a system. But the 70% can only be that that choice is being made pretty early on and quite consistently. Um, it can't be the case that the vast majority are needing this ty that type of surgery. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much where you know, our thinking around that. But the details specifically around when the decisions are made, we, we don't know that from the claim line data. Do you, do you wish to share from your experience? Are there any things that we are missing? <laughs> my well, my personal experience was that um, I, I've listened to all these talks. I'm an actuary and I had no risk factors. And I really wanted a natural birth. Um, and at a very late stage, um, I actually, I would have lo I, I almost lost my and my baby's life, so it, it saved my life. Of course. And then staying uh, for four days because of that, um, I I developed extreme high blood pressure on day four, um, which required um, um, ICC care. So I, I almost lo lost my life twice if it if it wasn't for these extreme cases. So I know it's just one case, but it feels difficult to hear that. Um, on average, costs might have been lower if I was discharged earlier, but I would have been dead. Yeah, so, 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 the, <laughs> yeah, so the, 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 idea, the idea of cost containment is not to deny care to those most in need. It's generally to, to have the most cost-effective care across the pool of lives that you're dealing with. So obviously, where cesarean sections are like, clinically needed and they're required, um, they do happen. And they would happen in, a, in the PPO model, right? If there's a very complicated case and it does manifest, that, that uh, fixed fee would cover that. It's obviously, obviously saying that, well, on, on mass, you know, the majority of cases will be less expensive, some will be more, and then on average, you know, we can get to this, this lower fee because we've shifted the decision into, into a more cost-effective way by and large. But making sure that we provide the, the correct care, um, you know, when it's necessary. Thank All you. right, I see um, one over there at the back. If we could just go to the back first and then we can come back. All right, the mic is already closed. It's fine. And we'll get to Shelton at the back. Okay, my, my comments and questions are for Peter about the end of life. And I think there's three things. You ask for, for comments about what could be done. And you, you immediately jump into palliative care, which is very interesting. And Atul Gawande needs to get another credit yes. in here for being mortal. But I think there's something that comes before palliative care that's, that's even more important, and it's something that things like vitality programs really need to pay much more attention to, and that's geriatric care. Yeah. Because the medical you know, environment, do you know how many geriatric um, practitioners uh, there are in this I'm continent? I'm not sure continent? how many, but there's very, very few. I'll tell you. <laughs> You see that hand? Those are all the geriatric specialists in all of Africa, and that's only because the guy at Senegal requires his own personal care. But I mean, it's a, 
it, it's a phenomenally poorly um, addressed point. And yet, if we started looking at healthcare and rewarding it in vitality programs for different types of, of care at that point, that'll have a big impact on those um, costs at the end. The second point is you talk about TCF, and I love the point that you raised about the doctors, because there's an interesting study out of Australia that, that talks about how patients in their last year of life get 44% of them get non-beneficial medication that we know won't do anything, but doctors have the Hippocratic Oath and they have to do something. So somewhere the two different sides of the profession need to get together and, and figure yes, out how to definitely. resolve this. But uh, what I really wanted to get to, where I really was hoping your conversation would go to, is around frail care. And I sat yeah. there listening to replacement ratios yesterday and I thought, has anybody looked at the cost of frail care in this country? And has anybody looked at the number? Do you know we only have 44,000 beds in this country that are subsidized for long-term care? So who the hell is going to pick up the cost of what that frail care is all about? And where do we get that kind of coverage, um, particularly if we're moving into a world where dementia is going to be the number one cause of death, not all these other things? And that absolutely demands care that's going to be beyond the capacity of, of multi-generational families. So that, to me, is a disaster that we're heading towards. And I don't know where we are as an insurance industry or anything covering it. Can you help us there? Yeah, so, so definitely the, the frail care is one of the big gaps that we need to address. And I'm not sure, because in medical schemes, it is specifically excluded from cover, from being covered. Um, and at this stage, there isn't really insurance in South Africa that you can buy for this care, like long-term care cover. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so that's one of these questions that we need to ask. Which industry should address this and how should the industry address this? How can we innovate? Because we have this massive need. People are living much longer and living with very serious illness for much longer. So the end-of-life period isn't six months, it's, it might be three or four years that you um, are frail and require care and around the clock someone, seven years, thank you. <laughs> I, I have the answer. People must contribute 40% into their pension. <laughs> um, yeah, well, uh, <laughs> yeah. the facilities would require funding right. it. Uh, it needs to come from somewhere. I'll come, I'll come back to you, but I just need to go to Shelton. Yeah. Thank you for the presentations. My question is to Matan. Um, the indemnity cover that you talked about for the guineas, I think uh, I'm failing to understand why it's persistently high, given that uh, we have a C-section rate and you're saying there's more certainty in that it reduces the risks. So why is it persistently high? You would expect it to start decreasing and then you have the chicken and egg and cycles or something like that. So what's going on with that cover? Why? So yeah, so as we chatted about, um, the problem is that while you're choosing to, to, to do these C-sections, if you don't engage in a well-documented, evidence-based approach to treating the, the, the patient, regardless of whether you're doing the C-section rates and you would expect the complications to be more limited, when they do occur, you have, there's no, there's no um, discussion to be have or 
or court case to be have to discuss to see did you do something right did you do something wrong and I only if you did something wrong are you paying out it's become a situation where because there's no they don't have no evidence backing the treatment decisions they actually don't have a foot to stand on and they have to have no choice but just to fold and to settle a case um, and as a result the utilization of the payouts is far higher than it should be so you know, that that's the dynamic that's that's occurring what you would ex what you sh you know ideally and what uh, PPO service trying to solve is to making sure that all the treatment decisions throughout the process of the care provided is first linked to evidence based so that you know it's you know when it comes to defending the decisions made it's based on you know clinical best practice and then documenting throughout the the, the entire process so that you have a a CRM or an IT system with all the detailed data as to why the decisions were made, when they were made, and these can be used as evidence in a mediation or in, in an arbitration or you know, some, some settlement that occurs, and only cases where there was malpractice by the doctor will there be a payout. If there wasn't, then you have the evidence to say, well, we actually did everything right, so at the best of our ability, given the information that we have, g given the case, and things happened to go wrong, but you know, that's, you know, we, we, followed every, we did everything that we should have done. So, I mean, for me, I mean, just a comment on that. Uh, in the state um, sector, I, I, would, that, that I would accept that, mm. that perhaps the documentation, and there's the issue of missing records and all of that. But in the private sector, I mean, I think from, um, I've, I've delivered twice uh, before. <laughs> and <But> personally, <laughs> <laughs> I had some help. Um, and, and, and in both times, I mean, there was significant amount of documentation of all okay. the, you know, all the stats were being taken and so on. The graphs were being completed. And the things are also in computer. So I would, it would be difficult for me to accept that the documents are not there to show. I remember in the, in the first instance, um, he actually wanted to do cesarean. We said, we think we can push. Um, <laughs> and, and he I said, I love how you he, say we. Yeah. <laughs> it's teamwork. Yeah, it's teamwork. Um, and, 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 but he made it very clear that if anything goes wrong, then we're taking that responsibility and we said right. we understood that. So I, I, I struggle to accept that in the private sector there isn't sufficient documentation so to defend those cases, but in the state, definitely. So, no, so, so in the private sector, while, I mean, that's a, an example of a success story, um, it seems the majority um, from the, you know, the, it's difficult to know if, how systematic it is, but from the, the, the anecdotes that you do hear in, in quite a widespread way, that's not, that's not the norm. So that's especially those um, obstetricians that aren't doing a huge number of births are doing them um, by themselves, not in, as part of a team, and they aren't doing the, you know, going through the rigor of documenting effectively. And when it comes to these malpractice claims, they're not seeing things. They're not, they're not we must evidence. not pay them anymore. Uh, they must pay back <laughs> the money. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was a question over here. Um, so we just pass the mic just behind you. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry. You, uh, sorry, uh, nothing against Mike, you. Please, no, you please. can't take it away. Um, um, a couple of things. One, one for for Anne to, to Anne's comment. Um, I've always, I've always wondered. Um, uh, the annuity providers have like no incentive to enhance the lives of annuitants because if you did a vitality style program for annuities, they would be sending pensioners cigarettes. Um, oh. And, and uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, because that's, that's the alignment of incentives. But I've always it's thought that... It's a business opportunity. Yeah. Right. Uh, but I've always uh, uh, thought, and I don't know, I don't know if, if it makes sense, to, if, if an annuity product contained a, a, a frail care component, which was assessed and managed as and when you need it, I think there would be a, a, a lot of incentive for annuity providers to manage the health um, 
and lifestyle of pensioners to try and minimize the need for, for healthcare at the end of life and to manage those healthcare decisions. So actually there's a, a stakeholder there that could step into product design. Um, but then uh, on, on, on the death, on death, Peter, we talk about death um, a lot. I, I, I wanted to, to share maybe um, a personal story of, of how, these, how these medical decisions work out. Um, and my, my, my father away passed away last year and we watched the, the, this, this develop and he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. So when the diagnosis came, it was already terminal. And the, the doctor stated that he could live for six months with chemo and for three months without chemo. But then the decision-making process proceeded to, and now we will assess whether you're healthy enough for chemo. Yes, you are. We will proceed with chemo. There was not a single moment in which the question, as is in the UK system, in which the question was asked whether you would like chemo and whether you want those extra three months. Um, and I thought that was, and, and that's exactly the point that Peter was making, is that the question wasn't even asked. And my, my parents and law went through the whole thing saying, well, the doctor said this is what we're doing. And they didn't have that opportunity. Um, and then maybe another story about the having the conversation was when my dad passed away, he had a stroke and he was in a coma. And my parents hadn't had the conversation. And when the question came from the doctor saying, we have to put him on a, you know, tomorrow we'll have to put him on a respirator or we will switch off the things. Can you make that decision? My mom couldn't. And she, her, her decision was, I have to put on, him on a respirator because I can't make the decision. He has never, we have never spoken about it. And unfortunately, he passed away during the night, but the decision would have been to keep him alive sure. and alive and alive where he couldn't have woken up. So all of these things, they add up, you know, uh, and, 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 and I, I thought I'd share it because I can see the sunny twitching, but we should talk about death. So, so I think we all have homework. When you get home, please uh, <laughs> Go have, the have the discussion. My husband and I are having a death picnic next week. It is very uncomfortable, yeah. but w it's something that we need to face. We are all going to die one day. And if we don't have these discussions, we might die a death that we don't want to die. So we don't want to die. My question is back to maternity. Um, and I'm in a, a unique position of um, having given birth in both South Africa and the UK NHS. Um, and comparing the two, um, the I mean, it definitely links into what Matan was saying about the whole, the model, um, the kind of PPO, PPO serve model, that we are very wasteful in South Africa and that the gynae does all antenatal visits. And in the NHS, that's much more um, streamlined, done, in the, done by the midwives and nurses, and which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I mean, I, I would say that I felt that my decision um, was taken away from me in terms of the, the birth my gynae said it's, it's cesarean or nothing. So yeah, in South Africa it was taken away. In South Africa it was taken away. Um, so, so I think your free, I think women's free choice in South Africa is taken away to a large extent by the risk adversity of the providers. Um, so that's one um, regret that I do have. But on to two more academic questions, and the one, or two more academic points. The one is um, around a co-payment. So we've had a scheme that has um, put in a co-payment for a um, an um, elective cesarean, and it's had s limited success. Uh, but I mean, maybe it is a step in the right direction. Um, put in a co-payment of ten thousand um, if uh, if the doctor is unable to justify um, why the cesarean has been done, and it's unable to prove it's an emergency cesarean. However, the the numbers are very small. I think 
I think between seven percent or ten percent are um, charged co-payments. So I mean, I struggle to believe that that the rest are emergency cesareans. Um, so, so that was an interesting case study. Um, and then what was my last point? I hope that's not a scheme I was involved in. No, no, no. no um, actually, I think they also did put in a co-pay. <laughs> 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 Yes, my last point is around, um, and I know Matan re referred to the data being missing around uh, gestational age and APGAR scores, but um, the cl clinicians will tell you that um, the, the tendency to do more caesareans means that births are being done sooner and therefore you have more prem um, yep. babies, and so that we definitely need to do more research around that and, mm -hmm. and understand, because I think we've looked at the, the costs of the births, but what are the costs yeah. of the um, additional neonates um, right. resulting from cesarean section? Okay, we just we have just over a minute, so there's a question right at the back there too. Maybe you can just keep it very short. Uh, did I skip someone here? Uh, Barry, Barry, can you can you just uh, uh, let, we might we must hear from Barry. Very short. <laughs> ah, there he is. The other Barry. <laughs> is it the mic on? Mike, uh, did somebody switch it off? Ooh, uh, can lend them one of. Uh, yeah, you can just yeah, talk. Yeah. Talk. yeah. Mm. Officially, time is, time is up, so I'm just going to allow you to conclude. Mm -hmm. Oh, is it? All right, unfortunately, time's up. Uh, it's just the nature of time. So let's go to our thing. Thank you very much for this and the engagement afterwards. Thank you.